Hi, I'm Emily. Hi, I'm Matt. We're married and we live in Central Florida. And we both really like politics. I like politics so much that I have a bachelor's degree in political science from the University of Central Florida, and I'm currently a student at UCF pursuing a dual master's degree in nonprofit management and public administration. I graduated from the University of Central Florida with a degree in computer science. And through my career as a software engineer, I've experienced firsthand how technology can help people participate in politics and make their voices heard. We started dating in November of 2016, so we've had a lot of politics to talk about from the beginning. And we managed to do so civilly, kindly, and still get in bed with each other at the end of the day. Every time you get on Facebook, watch the news, or gather around the family table for dinner, you can watch conversations devolve into nasty arguments with name-calling, insult trading, and subsequent unfriending. And while it would be impossible to agree with everyone all the time about everything, we at least thought people should be able to have civil conversations. So that's what this podcast is, an attempt by us to have civil conversations focused on a wide range of political topics. Because if we can do it, so can you. We can't promise that the conversations will be filled with agreement, smiles, and butterflies. And we can't promise that we will be totally unbiased. I'm a registered Democrat. I'm a registered Republican. But we can promise you that we will be on our best behavior, be respectful of one another, and share our conversations with you. One more legal disclosure before we get started. This podcast represents our own thoughts and does not reflect in any way the views or stances of our employers, affiliated educational institutions, or any other organization we are a part of. Now on to today's topic, the 2020 presidential debates. This episode will be the start of a three-part mini-series on presidential debates. In this first episode, we will explore the history of presidential debates, who runs them, how a candidate gets on the debate stage, and why one of the three scheduled debates preceding this year's presidential election was canceled. In the next episode, we'll unpack what was said by the candidates at the first 2020 presidential debate, do some fact-checking and explaining, and then we'll do the same thing for the vice presidential debate in the episode after that. So, we've got three episodes worth of debate content headed your way. Hopefully, it will be useful and help you navigate through the confusing maze that is politics in 2020. Let's dive right in and get started understanding how presidential debates work. Emily, who actually puts on these debates? Yeah, so most people don't know, which is sad. It's a little bit of a hidden gem. Uh, But the Commission on Presidential Debates hosts and regulates these debates and all that goes on in them. And they were established only in 1987. So really not that long ago. Wow, that's very recent. I know. For something that's such a staple, I feel like, in the American electoral process. It's really kind of a recent recent thing. And they have sponsored all of the presidential debates um, since 1988, going all the way up to 2016, and of course now 2020. The Commission on Presidential Debates is a nonpartisan nonprofit, and they're led by a voluntary board. Initially, when they were founded, the chair of this board uh, were the respective chairs of the Republican National Committee and the Democratic National Committee. Uh, but since then, no officers of major parties have participated in that way. Yeah. And it looks like the current members of the board is a good mix of people across the spectrum. So you have former senators, former founders of nonprofits, executives from different businesses, university presidents, news anchors, all kinds of different leadership. So the current board consists of different chairs. And those chairs right now are Frank Varenkopf, former RNC chair, Dorothy Ridings, chair of the League of Women Voters, and Kenneth Wallach, the a past president of the National Democratic Institute. 
So that's kind of the current leadership, but I definitely wanted to make sure that we covered a little bit of the history. Um, and most, I won't say infamously, because I, I guess it was good for Kennedy, um, but most people probably know about and what you were probably taught in your history lesson um, was the the very first presidential debate that was televised, which was the Kennedy-Nixon debate in 1960. Yeah. Um, and it was it was infamous in the way that uh, before then they were maybe uh, debates were relayed via radio or maybe people saw them in person and read about them in the newspaper. But that was the first televised debate. And uh, unfortunately for Nixon, he didn't he did not look good. He was kind of sweaty and kind of nervous and had this five o'clock shadow. Whereas Kennedy was this picture of like young, picturesque health, you know, kind of what you think of when you think of Kennedy. And so uh, for the first time, voters were able to see that and it and it really impacted people's perception of of the debate and the performance and if you if you talk to voters afterwards who had just listened to the debate they thought Nixon won the whole thing like a grand slam but people who watched the debate said that Kennedy took it home so it really was kind of the first foray into how televised debates can impact voter perception mm-hmm. and then following that there were no no such debates between presidential candidates in 64 68 and 1972 this was very surprising to me like i can't believe that something that was so influential was just dropped and i wonder if it's because the candidates afterwards saw like how nixon just like Got dealt a bum deal and just said like, oh, I don't want anything to do with that. Um, But yeah, that was very surprising to me that there was a very big gap between this Nixon-Kennedy televised debate and then the next debate that was actually televised to the American public. And yeah, even when they started having debates again, that they, the next time they started up was in 76 um, and they ran all the way through 84, but they were kind of like hasty last minute things that were put together between, you know, the campaigns and the candidates agreeing to rules and, and nobody really know if they were going to be around for any amount of certainty. Yeah, not a lot of formal organization there. Yeah. So in any given election, it wasn't really sure if voters were going to be able to really see and kind of get to know their candidates for president. Um, But following that 1984 election cycle, independently, Georgetown and Harvard studies found uh, that debates between presidential candidates are incredibly beneficial to voters. So that was kind of the catalyst that sort of sent the Commission on Presidential Debates into into action and and kind of got its start that way. Yeah. I mean, I love watching debates. I know sometimes it's questionable if a president's ability to debate really means they're going to be a good president, but I think it's a great opportunity for people to really see the candidates and how they behave under pressure, especially. Yeah. Which is very important. So, all right. So I have another question. Mm-hmm. Um, how is the CPD funded? Where do they get their money? How do we know that they're not influenced in some way to favor one candidate or another? Yeah. So great question. And I think it might be surprising to people. Um, as I mentioned, the CPD is a nonpartisan nonprofit. They're not a government entity. There's no legislation or uh, any sort of statutes that stipulate that presidential candidates have to participate in this debate. It is completely voluntary, their participation. There's no laws that mandate that they have to do it or that the government put on these debates. Right. And the CPD does not receive any money from the government, from political parties, from candidates, or from political action committees. Um, They get funds solely from donors and individuals and also from corporations, but they do have a strict policy where donors have to understand that even if they give to the CPD, they have no influence on the CPD's conduct or process. And if you're curious about what that process has looked like over the years and how that's changed, you can visit their website and they have a lot of detailed information going back to all the debates that they've hosted that includes date, time, network coverage, the number of viewers, description of the format, topics discussed. So they're really transparent about kind of 
what they've done and, and how they've done it. So how does the CPD determine which candidates to let in? For example, during the Democratic primaries, there were like 20 people up there at one point. It was kind of chaotic. What are the rules for what candidates get to participate? So yeah, the the presidential debates are definitely way different from the primaries. They're a totally separate entity. For primary debates, the actual party, for whatever party it may be, be it Republican or Democratic, has a lot more say on like the polling threshold and the number of candidates. Um, and that's how sometimes you end up with like 24 candidates on the stage and it's a madhouse. <laughs> the CPD has put in some regulations and rules to sort of govern how they select candidates. And actually, um, where the law does kind of intersect here is the Federal Election Commission has required that a debate sponsor, so be it the CBD or some other game in town, um, make candidate selection decisions on the basis of pre-established objective criteria. So basically, you can't make up the rules like a day before your debate. You have to have them set in stone so candidates are well aware of them and can try to meet those objectives and participate in the debate that they want. Okay. So like in the case of the Democratic primary, the FEC's rules still apply. They have to set up their own rules Mm -hmm. and let candidates qualify or not. But in the case of presidential debates, the CPD um, makes those rules, whereas in the Democratic primary, the Democratic Party makes those rules. So they're two totally separate debates. Yeah, totally separate entities. Okay, that makes sense. And for the CPD, um, they've got a couple rules. For starters, (laughs) rule number one, uh, a candidate has to be constitutionally eligible to hold the office of president of the United States. Oh, that's a good rule. Yeah, (laughs) that'll eliminate you right off the bat. Um, The second rule is that a candidate has to appear on a sufficient number of state ballots to have a mathematical chance of winning a majority vote in the Electoral College. So um, Kanye, sorry, not going to happen, Kanye. But he is on the ballot. He is on the ballot in a few states. But not enough states to win. So that's another that's another kicker. Um, Interesting. So sorry, Kanye. And this third rule is where things get a little sticky for some people. Candidates have to have a level of support at least 15% of the national electorate as determined by five public opinion polling organizations using the average of those organizations' most recently publicly reported results. The CPD selects a certain number of polls that they believe to be reputable, and then they look at those polls, and if you want to participate in the debate, you've got to meet this 15% support threshold. So if you're at 10, no-go. If you're at 14, no-go. you got to get that 15 and above in those recognizable, reputable polls for them to let you on the stage. Um, and gotcha. to, to be fair, the polls that will be relied on, um, they don't just pick those willy nilly <laughs> or out of a hat. The polls that are selected are based on the quality of the methodology used in the polls, the reputation of the polling organization and the frequency of the polling conducted. And the CPD has promised that they will identify the selected polling organizations well in advance before they make any decisions. So at the start of all this nonsense, before we get to candidates and actual debates and getting on stage, well in advance, they decide uh, what polling organizations they're going to use. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. That 15% rule was actually established in 2000 based on a review of academic research and desire to be inclusive of candidates with significant support, sort of preventing that primary debate fiasco that we we see every four years um, where you get 16 or 24 or a bunch of candidates on the stage and it becomes a madhouse. So the CPD wanted to avoid that. And thus, after doing some academic research, decided that that 15% rule was probably best. 
Um, and so when they go to pick those polls, like I mentioned, they have a predetermined criteria that they look at. And those polls are ultimately selected by a Gallup senior scientist that the CPD kind of keeps on retainer. And uh, <laughs> this name might only be familiar to you if you're a policy nerd, uh, but Gallup is kind of the gold standard when it comes to political polling. And so they're kind of the, the cream of the crop. So I think that's a that's an excellent person to have on retainer if you're looking to get sort of an insight into polling and, and who's doing a good job and whatnot. So to address the concern that I'm sure is in the back of, of most, <laughs> most minds um, is third party candidates and this 15% uh, polling threshold. And according to the CPD, a level of 15% um, is achievable by significant third party or independent candidates. Um, in making that assumption, uh, the CPD considered in particular the popular support achieved by George Wallace in 1968, and he had support levels as high as 20%. Uh, John Anderson in 1980, uh, Ross Perot in 92, he had some polls that were close to 40%. Wow. So it is possible if there's a third party or independent candidate, they can reach those levels of support needed and they can get themselves a ticket to the debate. Interesting. I didn't know that about the uh, percentage limit for third party candidates. So it is possible for other candidates to make it into the presidential debate. It's not necessarily just the Democratic Party gets to pick one and the Republican Party gets to pick one. It's based on these polls. Exactly. And this year's polls, for those that are curious, um, are the ABC Washington Post, CNN, Fox News, NBC Wall Street Journal, and NPR PBS NewsHour Marist polls. So I will definitely make sure to list those in the show notes and also have a link to the CBD's website so you can learn more about that. And just in case you're thinking, well, this is all fine and dandy that CBD has done all this academic research and decided all these things based on historical data and trends. Um, don't worry. Um, the FEC has also weighed in and so has the judicial system and found that that 15% threshold uh, complies with federal election law. So great. They're in the clear. They're in the clear. <laughs> okay. So... We know how they pick people who are going to participate in the debate as debaters. How do they pick moderators? Yeah. How did how did Chris Wallace get that lucky, Poor guy. lucky front seat? Um, so moderators are selected by the commission several weeks before the debates. And there is, of course, a predetermined criteria. They kind of stick with a theme here for selecting moderators. And those criteria are a familiarity with the candidates and the major issues of the presidential campaign extensive experience in live television broadcast news, and an understanding that the debate should focus maximum time and attention on the candidates and their views. Uh, the moderators alone are charged with selecting the questions to be asked during the debate, and those questions are not made known to CPD or the candidates. So it is it is a hefty job. It's a big responsibility, and those decisions aren't made lightly. Well, wow, I didn't know that about the questions. I'm very surprised the CPD doesn't try to like you know, screen the questions or make sure that the questions are impartial. It's interesting. It's clear they really trust these moderators to be familiar with the issues and come up with questions they know will matter to the American public. Yeah. And I think the questions they've selected so far have been excellent. Oh, yeah. I think there's definitely also a level of accountability sort of directly with the American public because those moderators are going to go on television in front of millions of people and ask these questions. So it puts the pressure on you to to ask good, thorough, thought out questions and Make sure you get, you know, good responses. I think it's interesting that, you know, that last qualification is that debates should focus the maximum time and attention on the candidates and their views. Um, 
which I totally agree with. Oh, yeah. Uh, but especially in these these last debates, unfortunately, the moderators have had to, I think, step in a little more um, just to kind of quell the squabbling and, and tell people to stop interrupting and taking over one another's time. And so that that's unfortunate, but that's more on the behavior of the candidates that the moderators are forced to step in and sort of play referee, for lack of a better word. So, yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So another question. How are debate sites selected? So interested parties can apply to be debate hosts. Oh my so gosh. what do you think? We should host you a debate. And me? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, probably not though. Just historically over the years, uh, the CPD has held all but three of its debate on college campuses. So okay, but they do this primarily to allow students to participate in the production process and That's great. get involved with uh, election related projects, which is fantastic because that kind of college age demographic is usually the first time that people get to vote. So I think it's really cool that students kind of get the chance to participate. So we probably won't host a debate in our living room, but that'll be okay. Okay, so similar to a question I asked last episode about <laughs> is mail in voting worth the trouble? Are these debates worth it? Like I said before, this is a lot of work that goes into hosting these things. Do they really make a difference? Are they worth the trouble? Yeah, I, they are astoundingly, especially in a in a year with a global pandemic where as many people couldn't probably attend as in person as would have liked. The viewership of presidential debates is significantly greater than any other political programming on major television. From 1988 to 2016, the CPD's debates have attracted audiences between approximately 35 million and 100 million viewers excluding viewership after the live broadcast. So those numbers are just people that watch while it's happening. That's not the people who go and watch snippets on YouTube or recaps or highlight reels. So for context, that's, you know, between a third and a fourth of the entire population of the United States. Yeah, it's bonkers. In in 2016 alone, uh, six in 10 voters said that the presidential debates were very or somewhat helpful in deciding which candidate to vote for. And exit poll data for many years has shown that voters cite the debates more than any other single factor in considering how to cast their ballots. So they're really important and a lot of people rely on them. And they're a great way to get information. Well, usually when the candidates aren't arguing, <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're usually a great way to get information and get to know the candidates. Oh, yeah, I, I think they're great. I love watching presidential debates. Um, so what the heck's going on with the debates this year? We had a first one. The second one got canceled. What happened there? Yeah, so uh, the CPD released earlier in the year the schedule for the debates, and all the parties uh, involved agreed to those, you know, rules and formatting and dates and times and all that good stuff. And the president tested positive for COVID on Friday, October 2nd, just a few days following the initial presidential debate, which was held on September 28th. So on October 8th, the commission announced they would be going virtual for the second town hall style debate um, that was scheduled for October 15th. And immediately following uh, this announcement, <laughs> President Trump uh, indicated that he did not wish to participate in a virtual debate. And uh, the Trump and Biden campaign kind of went back and forth about rescheduling or postponing or changing the format um, before both candidates decided not to attend and kind of to go another route. So the commission uh, formally canceled that debate. And now we are all looking forward to what would have been the third, but will now be the second and final debate slated for October 22nd. That is scheduled to go on as was originally intended and in person. So. All right. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> now that we've covered the history and processes surrounding presidential debates, you can really appreciate our next episode. 
That's right. In our next episode, we will be fact-checking and analyzing what the heck happened at the first presidential debate. As many of you know, that debate was passionate and heated, to say the least. So we're going to try and unpack what the candidates said, add some context to their statements, and try to make sense of everything. Thanks so much for listening. As always, please reference our show notes for the sources of all of the information that was shared in today's podcast. You can access the show notes at our website, and you can get to our website by clicking the link in the description of this episode wherever you're listening. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye for now. Bye.